Hello and uh, good morning. Welcome to this podcast on global security and democracy. My name is Nicole Heller and this is Reboot 2030, a Democracy School podcast. My guest today is Chris Hammer, who joins us from Australia. Chris is a theoretical physicist. He obtained his PhD from the California Institute of Technology in 1972, and he's still an honorary associate professor in the School of Physics at the University of South Wales, uh, where he still uh, is based. Chris currently serves in a caretaker role as the president of Scientists for Global Responsibility, formerly also known as Scientists Against Nuclear Arms. And of course, he's also the founder the World Citizens Association of Australia. I'm talking to Chris today in his capacity as president and treasurer of the Coalition for a World Security Community of Democratic Nations, as he'll be making the case for a multinational alliance of democracies at a time of global crisis to mitigate against the real and growing risk of a third world war. Now, I can see that Chris is here, so let me invite him in. Chris, good evening. Hi there, Nico. How are you? <laughs> good to see you. This time, everything seems to be working fine, except, of course, I have the wrong thumbnail image. So I hope whoever is watching on YouTube didn't get too confused. It is indeed Chris Hammer I'm talking to today. So, Chris, welcome. Uh, I'm glad you're here. Um, Chris, you've long been active as a democracy activist and uh, not so much at the local or national but indeed at the at the global level you're also a uh, a kind of a, a passionate federalist um and uh, and indeed the co-founder of a coalition for a world security of community uh, a world security community of democratic nations now that's a mouthful now chris um could you just start off maybe by telling us what what this uh coalition of a world security community of democratic nations actually is where it came from when it was founded so that we get a sense of uh, where you're coming from thanks nico for giving me the opportunity to speak again um we were started in 2018 at a meeting of the global challenges foundation in stockholm uh, the global challenges foundation was um, founded by a philanthropist named Laszlo Sombat-Falvi. And, pardon me if I refer, refer to this, it was dedicated to raising awareness of global catastrophic risks and strengthening global governance to address them. And um, they had this meeting, something called the New Shape Forum, where they um, formed a number of transnational working groups um, working on various issues or directions um, with some support from the foundation. So e.g. one of the um, working groups has become now the coalition for the UN we need, um, which is a big coalition focused on reforming the UN um, our working group was motivated as follows. So to deal with these global catastrophic risks like climate change, like nuclear war, it's obvious, it seems, that we need a better system of global government, basically, some, some sort of world federation. But... Democracy has to be a basic, a fundamental principle of any world federation to, to ensure that it doesn't become a world tyranny or a world autocracy. Um, that's got to be a fundamental principle. Well, the problem is not all the nations of the world are democratic. So basically a world federation is out of the question just now. However, what we could do is follow the European example and start from a smaller core group of the countries which does respect the principle of democracy and form a community, just a community to begin with, um, aiming at some uh, target aim and look for the, so this is like the European coal and steel community, if, if you know that. So the idea is 
just if we get a start, um, then that might grow, add new members and evolve through new treaties over decades. And hopefully in a number of decades, it might indeed result in first a union of democracies and secondly, a democratic world federation. Um, so that's the basic strategy, if you like. Um, now, what sort of community should it be? Uh, a coal and steel community doesn't make much sense on the world stage. And um, globalization has meant that um, trade is not, well, wasn't such an issue. But a major issue is security at the moment, with, with the um, struggle going on between democracy and autocracy in the world. So we thought, um, why don't we aim for a world security community? Um, organized as a community on the European pattern, but um, basically forming an alliance of um, democracies. So that's our aim. Um, I, uh, Chris, can I just interject you for uh, yeah, one second? Um, this is a really interesting idea. But when when I listen to this as a sort of as an ordinary uh, person without any kind of global experience, um, to me, this sounds like something that's for other people uh, in, in a sense that, you know, it's a kind of a bit of a stretch, I think, for most people to, to think that they could get involved in, in a coalition or in, in, in a movement uh, that is actually global um, and that is actually setting itself up to make a difference at the global level, um, given that most countries, most nations feel, most governments feel that at the global level, they have got very little control because it tends to be a kind of a, a survival of the fittest, a kind of a, a winner takes all, a zero-sum game. Um, although we do have international laws, uh, they are often being bent to whatever uh, in definitions suit people best. So there is a sort of a sense that it's hard enough to have a say and to have an influence and impact at the local or national level as an ordinary citizen. But at the global level, it's a bit of a stretch. So what, what, how, how, how do you approach this? Just to kind of get a sense so that our listeners get a better sense of whether this might be something for them to get involved. Um, so... so why, why do you think it is worth your time um, as, a, as a normal citizen of uh, Australia to get involved in something so big? Right. Well, um, it's awfully difficult, as you say. Um, just any civil society organisation has no influence on the, um, well, very little influence at, at the higher levels of government. But what can we do? We have to do the best we can. Um, I've believed, I guess, in World Federation as long as I can remember, since I was a teenager. Um, but I got into another line of business, physics in the end. But um, the thing is, we all have to do what we can. And we can all write letters. We can lobby politicians. Um, we do the best we can. That, that's all we, we can do. Um, I mean, I, I mentioned the C4UN looking for reform of the UN. Um, they're always pushing it uphill because any major reform is going to be vetoed by one of the permanent five, right? In particular, China or Russia. Um, but they're carrying on, they're doing what they can. Um, what can we do? We, we do the best we can. So um, we have about 50 members. We have a website. Um, we have very little uh, social media, so we could do much better in that regard. Um, yeah, it's difficult. We, we just do the best we can. That's all I can say. I, I, I told, to, totally get that. And as you say, you know, you've got to start somewhere and you have to kind of build, build out slowly from there and be realistic about what is feasible in, in this world today. Because if, if, if we're not realistic about things, then we may just get disillusioned and drop out again. So there's got to be some mix of realism and idealism, and that balance needs to be maintained. Uh, otherwise, we're going to run out of steam, I believe, quite quickly, because we feel, oh, well, this isn't happening quickly enough. But but of course, over the over the period, I mean, the, uh, the coalition... Um, 
for a world community of democratic nations, it's 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 like an association. It is a group of people who have agendas and they have meetings and and there is even though progress on the global stage seems to be negligible and some would say kind of obviously even sort of like going back um but um but within your organization there can be a sense of progress because you're doing stuff aren't you so um looking back um what, what were the sort of the principal milestones you know since since you started as a coalition has there been some kind of sort of points in your history as an organization that you think that they were kind of formative or important for your development yes i, I can give you some milestones um so we formed sort of round the table um a working group at in stockholm and we were given a bit of seed funding by the global challenges foundation and they supported us to give a um, presentation at the Paris Peace Forum the following year in 2019. Um, unfortunately, they've favoured other groups rather than us since then, but still, they gave us a start. Um, then in succeeding years, we've met face-to-face, -face, some of us, a few of us, at the Copenhagen Democracy Summit. Um, run by the Alliance of Democracies Foundation, um, who have a similar, well, simpler aim, I suppose. Uh, they just want to form a global alliance of democracies. Their um, founder is um, Anders Fogh Rasmussen, who's a former Secretary General of NATO, a former Prime Minister of Denmark, etc. And they have these yearly meetings. Um, we go along and listen and speak when we can and um, meet, you know, we that's the, basically the only time we meet face-to-face because -face our members span Australia, Europe, America, dot, dot, dot. Um, we were adopted formally as a transnational working group of the World Federalist Movement, the WFM IGP, uh, also in 2021. Um, we had a joint podcast with the Alliance of Democracies Foundation in the same year on the subject of how to unite the world's democratic forces, um, at which our co-chair Didier Jacobs spoke. And um, since then, well, for the last year, I've been trying to get uh, the executive director of the Alliance of Democracies Foundation, Jonas Perello plesner out to Australia. But unfortunately, he's kept postponing his visit. Um, so we're still trying that. Um, those are the main highlights. Um, I think, to be frank, we've leveled off somewhat, but... Um, we're still trying, and um, you're about to ask me about one direction we're looking at at present. Uh, that's right. That's right. That's right. I mean, that. Um, um, I mean, it's interesting, you know. And, and you know, at, you know, at times of crisis, um, uh, a crisis of democracy, but also economic crisis, and indeed uh, military conflict. Um, Often, what is needed most is available least. You know, there, there's a sort of a, 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 a strange uh, paradox here. You like at the times when we need democracy most, it's most hard. It's, it's hardest to actually kind of mobilize around it because often, especially you know, also again at the moment, uh, you know, there, there is sort of a sense of sort of a, a lot of um, faith in democracy, in democracy's ability to solve problems and. And what people are often are then looking for is a strong hand, a kind of a, yeah, authoritarian approach that will solve these problems for us. And of course, this is what we're up against, isn't it? Is is sort of, um, um, you know, at this point, you know, what would be a realistic way to somehow unlock a sort of a, a democratic process that would lead to a better future? Um, and um, and it's a difficult place it's a difficult starting point because of the times we lived through and 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 the world leaders were, were basically you know we're, we're left with we haven't a choice we have to deal we have to engage with the people uh that, that that are there and and um and if they don't want to engage or if 
if the agenda differs fundamentally from ours, then that's tough luck. I mean, you know, it's it's difficult. But there, there is uh, clearly uh, an idea that's been, you know, has refused to die. Let me put it this way. And it's kind of popped up, you know, in different fora and different forms. And this is this idea that we somehow need to rethink NATO. Uh, I mean, I'm saying NATO partially because of the security imperative, but also because of its history and its purpose. And and, and there are questions around whether NATO still is the, the right sort of security alliance format for the future, whether this can still secure world peace as a deterrent or whether we need a wholly new approach. And I think what you're suggesting is, is no, let's not, let's not do away with NATO. NATO is important, but let's somehow think about democratizing a security infrastructure around NATO, which in the long term might assimilate NATO, but in the short to medium term, it clearly would just, if at all, coexist. Now, that 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 sort of new structure that, that kind of refuses to die, that idea, people talk of a D10, as in democracy 10. And I guess what they mean by that, and you will kind of tell me a lot more about it, but my understanding is that the idea is to bring together kind of the major democracies of this world as a starting point for something bigger. Um, and then over time, as the world hopefully democratizes further, uh, to bring in more nations on board. Um, now, um, maybe we start with this, so that's just, just a brief history of the idea. Um, when was the idea of a D10 first kind of voiced, first articulated, and by whom? And, and, and what exactly was it back then? And how has the idea developed since? Okay. Um, can, can you tell me to get back to that? I, I'd just like to um, reinforce what you said about the present situation. Um, I mean, there's been this struggle, right, between democracy and autocracy, has been talked about for ages. And um, basically, democracy has been losing for the last 15 or more years. So uh, Freedom House claims that 15 out of the 17 most recent years, democracy has gone backward in the world. Um, Meanwhile, um, we seem to face greater and greater threats. So there's even talk that soon we might be facing World War III. Um, we've seen Russia actually invade Ukraine, which shocked the entire world, uh, even though Putin said he would do it. Uh, Xi Jinping has announced that he will overtake Taiwan by force if necessary, by 2049, all the experts say he's going to try much sooner than that. Uh, in fact, the expert opinion is he'll be ready to go by 2027. He's building armaments and ships and rockets and so on as fast as he can go. Um, and so we may face World War Three by 2027. And Henry Kissinger, just before he died, warned that things looked very much like um, pre-war conditions. So that gives, it seems to me, that gives a major reason for our idea of an alliance of democracies. It should give huge impetus to the idea. Um, right, now you mentioned NATO. So NATO is the um, alliance of democracies we have at the moment. It's the obvious way to go, but it's pretty large. It's 28 members, is it, or coming on for 30 members. Um, I think Jens Stoltenberg proposed in 2021 that it should be extended to the Indo-Pacific. But I believe that was knocked on the head immediately by France and Germany, who said it should be, you know, they should concentrate on the knitting in Europe. And if raised again, there's a very good chance that the idea would be vetoed by some other members of the um, alliance, e.g. Hungary. Um, so in my idea, or in my view, it's a bit too large to start with. I mean, it would be great if, if it did go this way, but, and as I say, Jens Stoltenberg seems 
um, in favor of the idea, but it's very, very difficult. So again, if we follow the European example, we should start with a smaller group. Europe was just the original six. Um, here we're proposing uh, the D10, as you say. The D10, where are we? Um, oh yes, I forgot to mention a major point. So, so if I go, go back one moment. Um, I think everybody has agreed that um, a world war, possibly started by China invading Taiwan, would be an absolute disaster and might lead to nuclear war. It could lead to sending the planet back to the Stone Age. So we need to do everything we can, everything we possibly can to deter China, dissuade China from doing it. So again, uh, forming the most powerful possible alliance of democracies would seem to be the best way of deterring China. Okay, um, so I mentioned the NATO route. Um, an alternative is this D10. So I believe it was first raised in the US um, as a, I forget exactly the details, but some sort of security proposal back about 2014, 2011. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I haven't got the date in my head. Um, it's been pushed by um, people in the Atlantic Council. Ash Jane has been a major proponent. Um, Matthew Kronig, who's the director of the Scowcroft Centre, is also a proponent. Um, right, so that the D10 would consist of the G7 plus two or three members from the Indo-Pacific. So it would then become a global, um, I mean, the G7 is the Euro-Atlantic area again. Um, if you extend it to the D10 by adding Australia, uh, South Korea, and possibly India, if they want to join, um, it would extend itself to the Indo-Pacific and be become a global um, grouping. It's not yet an alliance, but they are very concerned about security, as naturally would be the case. And so um, they could easily decide they would like to form a, a security community or an alliance and get things started. Okay, so um, at the moment, the, the obviously the role of the G seven is, you know, a purely economic one. It, it's it's an economic alliance uh, to to in a way to to harmonize, I believe, trade and um, between those countries and extend it out from that on a global stage. Uh, but moving from it being purely a economic alliance to becoming a security alliance, obviously, would require sort of a new governance structure, wouldn't it? I mean, you would have to, in a way, for starters, you would have to democratize it. Um, and because at the moment, I believe the, the G7 isn't in any, doesn't have a, a democratic governance structure of any sort. Uh, are there any thoughts on that, on how you would turn what is essentially just a club of rich countries into an alliance of democracies? I mean, it's quite a, it's quite a shift, no? Yes. I mean, ideally, um... One would like to say the G7 would agree or determine that they were going to extend to the Indo-Pacific, number one, and two, following the European pattern again, they should set up a commission to draft a treaty to form um, a security community or, or an alliance. Um, the community should include um, a parliamentary assembly and a court, which would be the nuclei of an eventual legal system and um, democratic system. I mean, originally the parliamentary assembly would just be nominated members from the various home parliaments. Um, so again, Europe has set the pattern. We, we just ideally would just follow that. Um, but first, 
we need their agreement to um, extend themselves. So um, the next summit of the G7 is due to occur in Italy in June. And um, we're just trying to get this idea on the agenda of extending it to a D10. And so um, we'll be sending out letters and um, what literature we can, just trying to persuade people to discuss it there, to put it on the agenda. At the moment, Chris, uh, there, there are two Gs, aren't there? There's a G7, but there's also a G20. And of course, the G20 isn't just, a, 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 you know, you know, like a, a larger G7. It's it's a separate organization that I believe also in, includes the G7, but it operates on a different basis from the G7. They're separate clubs. Um, now, when you talk about a D10 as a sort of an extended G7, are you talking about then the G7 disappearing entirely and being replaced by a D10? Or are you talking about a bit like the way when they brought in the G20, um, that the G7 would carry on as G7, but there would then also be a G10, if you get what I'm saying? Yes, I, I, I get the idea. Um, I think it would basically be up to them. But yes, um, I would like to see it morph, change into a... D10, um, and it could, you know, it could be a very convenient forum, not only for defending each other, but also for discussing action on uh, other issues like climate change, how how they would cooperate on the issue of climate change. Um, and you're right. I mean, they're basically an economic group at the moment, but, um, well, I'm no economist, but... I think the major issue at the moment is security rather than economics. Anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, you're going to, well, what are the members? The members at the moment in the G7 are the North American members, uh, Canada and the US, and then the European members, um, Germany, Italy, France, um, have I missed one? And um, Japan, who, mind you, is already in the Indo-Pacific, um, plus the EU these days. I think that EU has two seats or something on the G7. Um, so uh, those are the present members. As I say, we'd just like to see them extend to Australia and South Korea, which would, you know, form a, a closer alliance in the Indo-Pacific, a bigger alliance in the Indo-Pacific, hopefully deterring China from any funny business over Taiwan. I, I get that. But, of course, the G7 in its current form isn't a deterrent at all. Um, uh, and, 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 in fact, you know, another route to go would be to say, you know, forget about democracy, let's just extend and bring the, you know, the... Um, um, the emerging economies like you know China, India, Brazil, South Africa into into the kind of economic world community and stabilize that way because of course wasn't that the idea originally with the EU that you would kind of create economic interdependency to an extent that wars would no longer be economically viable and thus would no longer happen wasn't that the, the, the hence the kind of the coal and steel community and that, wasn't that the, the the approach that you would kind of create a kind of a kind of a, a highly integrated economy and that would make it almost impossible uh, to to fight each other and of course wouldn't that be another way to go rather than to go the democratic route to go the economic route in the way the EU has done well that's that's the uh, example we're looking at um but, you know, it seems to me globalisation has already uh, introduced free trade. We've regressed from that, but, but we virtually had free trade some years ago. Um, Donald Trump and company have sort of pulled us back a bit from that. But um, I don't know if there's much more to do there. Um, Europe did show the example of... Um, Solidarity. They had this principle of solidarity. So they invited new members and they allocated, Germany in particular, allocated new funds to bring the new members up to speed with the other members um, economically. 
So I'd like to see that happen with the um, the 10 also. So it, it should be open to new members, but it just would be a starting point, an easier starting point, it seems to me, than NATO. Absolutely. I mean, the, in, in, like uh, going back to the European model, of course, um, uh, at the core of the European model, of course, there were two concepts, the kind of the, uh, the internal market and the customs union. And within those two concepts um, was like a third. And that third concept was of major benefit to the citizens of Europe. And they were kind of called the four freedoms. Uh, the, you know, freedoms, the freedom of movement for laborers, people can move around freely in Europe without a visa or whatever, can work wherever they want, freedom of capital and so on. And um, um, and, and these freedoms meant, uh, and you know, like a high level of integration. Um, and, and of course, people would get to know each other. They would, you know, Europe would become much more integrated sort of uh, uh, socially uh, and, and also politically. Uh, and then of course, the final big step there was you know, a joint currency, the euro. Uh, once you share a currency, it's very difficult to have a war, isn't it? Because you know, uh, uh, so 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 it wasn't just uh, free trade, uh, because of the course of free trade, there isn't any free movement. I mean, like imagine every Indian person or whatever, or any you know African person would be allowed to freely travel to to Australia or freely travel to Europe. That ain't going to happen. And so the actual benefits of the European Union that actually sold it to Europeans were the freedoms uh, that came with that integration. And of course, uh, with the D10, uh, the question is, is what would be the tangible benefits um, to security is, of course, a big benefit. But in the absence of its opposite, in the absence of war, it's, it's quite an abstract benefit. It's not something that I can actually action in the same way I can action the freedom to travel uh, or the freedom to work anywhere where I want to work um, or the freedom to set up a business, uh, you know, anywhere and so on and so forth. So so those freedoms, those freedom, or, you know, to move money around and so on and so forth. So those freedoms that Europeans enjoy within the, uh, you know, the, 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 the customs unit, uh, sorry, the customs union and the, the single market they really kind of brought Europe together and made it very difficult and will make it very difficult to, to split it apart, even though those, those you know, those centrifugal forces are now Brexit. very much at play. Um, but so the question is, is how, what would be the glue that holds together a G10? Okay. Um, well, once again, the European example is great. So, you know, the the... Plot has succeeded, so war within Europe is basically out of the question now. Um, so that's number one. Those freedoms are great. Um, they would have to lie in the future, right? Well, depends what, which countries we're talking about. But the countries have to be more or less economically on the same level to allow free movement and so on. Um, um, I mean... Europe's facing a refugee problem of huge proportions itself, right? So um, integrating with Africa is going to have to wait a while. Um, but you're right. Um, ideally, the community should develop much more activity in other areas. Um, the OECD could well be um, a forum for um, common action. So that does include, I think, only democracies. Um, it's a major instrument of economic activity on the world stage. And so um, our idea is hopefully that um, uh, that could take care, if you like, of the economic aspects to some extent. So, I mean, if we started with a D10 and open it up, then many countries would probably pop on board very quickly. So most of the NATO countries, hopefully, um, dot, dot, dot. So I, mean, we... I think the, 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 um, the principle at the, at the heart of NATO is this idea that an attack on one member is an attack on all members. Um, yes. So you would want to think twice about attacking a tiny little country that is a member of NATO because you would also be attacking the United States. Um, and, and so that principle, of course, is a huge deterrent. Um, would you see a D10 to take on that principle or would there be another principle? 
No, no, that, that would be the fundamental principle, yes. Um, so that would be the, the core issue, but um, beyond that, well, you know, we call it a community rather than an alliance because we're looking for these extra instruments of government following the European pattern that could lead further on to uh, uh, the four freedoms you mentioned, uh, a union of democracies eventually. And, I mean, we have to have faith, I suppose, that um, the whole world will be democratic eventually because it's a, a better, it's a more modern, it's a more effective system of government. Um, you know, we've had kings forever, but but they're not the ultimate um, means of government. I mean, but when you take NATO, just to go back to that example, not every member of NATO is a democracy, as we know. I mean, I'm thinking, for instance, Turkey, or I'm, you know, there's other examples where you could question whether they would be still democracies. Now, um, you are, if I understand you correctly, saying that this is part of the problem that in this conflict between autocracy and democracy, we need an alliance, a security alliance that is solidly grounded in this idea of democracy um, without, so that it doesn't become just a pure question of muscle, but also a question of shared values. Um, you know, sure. in the same way as the European Union would see itself, although, you know, you could debate that, but it sees itself as a sort of a, a, a sort of a value-based union. Um, now, um, the G7, of course, you know, is doesn't have any sort of democratic criteria. This is purely about economic might. Um, and um, um, so, so, so why, 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 and, and of course, one route you kind of, you sketched out as a possible expansion uh, or as a global security kind of infrastructure, you said, I said, well, NATO could do that if, and Stoltenberg would support that presumably, if countries like Germany and France would go along with the idea. But then of course, um, democracy doesn't really figure very highly, whereas in, in, in the D10 proposal, democracy seems to be quite central to the whole approach. Um, what 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 is it really that is at stake here? Is it democracy or is it global stability and security? Well, um, it's hard to see global stability and security without democracy. I mean, we're seeing these huge threats from the um, autocracies in Russia and China at the moment. So, yes, again, I would like to see, shall we say, follow the European example. So the EU has criteria for membership. And Turkey, for instance, has been applying for membership for many years and has sort of never managed quite to reach the criteria, right? Um, so NATO is rather looser in that regard. Um, I guess Turkey's a very valuable member in terms of position and military assets and so on. But anyway, um, Yes, no, I, I think um, you need to keep the criteria um, similar to the way Europe has done it. I mean, it, it, it occurs to me that um, for this kind of starting proposition, a, uh, you know, a, a security alliance, a global security that extends into the kind of in the Pacific kind of region, uh, for that democracy is kind of, a, you know, a nice to have add on in a sense. <clears throat> Because, you know, like the military itself isn't particularly democratic to start with. So um, democracy, when it comes to military uh, operations, isn't really a big issue. Now, why it was and is a big issue in the EU is, of course, the EU expanded out beyond. And some of the, 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 the you know, the, the biggest critics of the EU would make that an issue. It expanded out way beyond pure economic questions. And there are shared budgets and and financial allocations and um, uh, and so on and so forth and money going from some countries to other countries and when money changes hands, you kind of want to know that it's spent on things that you yourself also value and support. Uh, you know, and of course, for as long as you only talk military, you're not going to ask. Well, do they have a democratic structure within their army? You know, because they don't. You know. But once you extend out beyond that, and then the kind of the democracy and the value system uh, linked to that becomes a, a much bigger kind of concern. Uh, so my question is this, 
Um, a G7 um, expanding to a, to a D10, it of course, it starts as an economic alliance and it will go from there. And, and again, like there's not much democratic about business. I mean, most businesses aren't. Um, so, and, and the same would go for military. Indeed, they, they share a lot of the jargon and a lot of the kind of, the, the, you know, um, um, the, the perspective uh, from market penetration to expansion to what you have it, you know, like, uh, so in fact, a lot of the kind of, in fact, I believe business schools often kind of grew out of military academies. So there's, there's a very close link between sort of economic uh, education and military education. Um, now, once you expand beyond that, democracy becomes a, a, a you know a, a much bigger issue. So the question is: is would it have to be democratic from the start? Would it have to be kind of written large from the start, or is this something it would grow into? No, I think it has to be there from the start. So um, it's a fundamental principle. Um, Europe applied that I, again, and um, it developed a lot of functions and um, freedoms and what have you later on. So this would all happen on the global scale later on. But um, um, I think democracy has to be a fundamental principle. And once you started, as I say, lots of countries would rush to join in, I believe. Um, some would stay out, no doubt. But um, and then if you had uh, structural adjustment funds like Europe did, um, it would form a huge incentive for new countries to join them and make themselves more democratic uh, in order to qualify to join. Um, and so I would see this as a huge step forward in, in general. Um, the practical details, you know, I'm, I'm not, not a politician and I don't know, um, but uh, at least it's worth discussing, and it has been discussed in the past. Um, so we're just hoping to get it on the agenda uh, in the next little while. So, so um, getting it onto the agenda presumably would mean to get it onto the agenda of the G7, I suppose. Yeah. <clears throat> yes. And and in, in terms of getting it onto the agenda of the G7. With this idea of expanding the G7, in fact, transforming, it's not just an expanding, it's a transforming because it would be a, a very different animal, you know, but, but, you know, once it becomes a D10, because at the moment, yes. democracy isn't a concern of the G7. It, it's not part of its, you know, of, of its, of, of, of its, you know, founding rationale. Um, although it is in a sense that there used to be this thing called the Washington Consensus, where people would say, say well, that democracy and capitalism go hand in hand. And so, so there was this kind of, Sort of, kind of this sort of poetic link between the two, but it was never really quite spelled out in one way. It had to be democratic. Um, but moving on to a sort of a G10 would really mean a transformation, and there would have to be some kind of founding document. And presumably, one would want to keep this very, very simple to kind of get it across the line because it becomes, you know, what I mean, otherwise it's an impossible thing to negotiate. Um, so, what yeah. what do you think would be the principal aspects such a document would have to cover? to get it over the line, but to stay true to the idea of a D10. Okay. Well, again, I go back to the European example. So you would begin with a treaty, I presume. That's the usual way. Be, that's my question. Exactly. So uh, what would be, uh, generically speaking, what would be at an absolute minimum have to be covered in that treaty? Okay. You start with a preamble, right, which can discuss the principles uh, which would include democracy, um, uh, what did I say, solidarity, um, all, all the principles already adopted in Europe. Um, and then the body of the treaty then contains the substantial action items, which would be an Article 5, like NATO, um, it would probably establish um, uh, organs of government, such as a Supreme Council, consisting of regular meetings of the heads of state, uh, a commission, consisting of sort of cabinet ministers looking after the actual day-to-day -day activities. As I say, a parliamentary assembly, which to start with would just be nominated members of the 
the national parliaments. Um, and a court set up to adjudicate any disputes between the members, probably have nothing to do to start with, but it would be the core, the, the, the nucleus, if you like, of a proper legal system one day. And um, what have I forgotten? Anything major left in Europe? But though, I think those were there right from the beginning in the ECSC, and they should be in the uh, founding treaty of a hoped for D10. Okay, uh, and um, that that, may, that makes perfect sense. And of course, you, you could sort of, in a way, kind of water this down to, to quite an extent, and you could talk about future commitments to this or future commitments to that, just to get it over the line. It's a bit like the euro. Not everybody adopted the euro, but they all had to commit to do so when the time is right. Um, and, okay. uh, and of course, for countries like Sweden or Denmark, the time still isn't right, <laughs> you know, and, and I don't think the time ever will be right, you know, uh, given given the economies and uh, um, and, and really? kind of the, the way they look at the euro. Um, that window almost has closed, but we, we still live with this illusion that when the time is right, then the other European members will join the euro. Well, there are many Eastern European EU members who are, of course, not part of the eurozone. Uh, and some of them may well like to join, but the risk of destabilization is so large that, again, it's not really quite clear whether they ever will. So in, in a way, you could see a, a sort of a treaty that had, has these kinds of provisions, you know, to kick, you know, certain hard decisions uh, into the long grass. Uh, and, and the question just, of course, would be how far could you take this without actually losing sight of the project? Um, but it's I think it's it's a very interesting. So. Um, so there's a G7 meeting this uh, this year uh, where this proposal, where there's different groupings, uh, including, of course, um, the World Security Community for a Democratic for Democratic Nations or the Coalition for a World Security Community of Democratic Nations, is is lobbying um, to to get that onto the agenda. Are there other? Do you have allies in this process? Are there people within the G7 that would actively support uh, that proposal? Good question. Um, we really don't at the moment, but we're, we're trying to lobby. Um, for instance, I said Ash Jane, um, a couple of people at the Atlantic Council. Um, there's Richard Ponzio at the Stimson Institute. Um, I've, I've tried to get people to sign up just to support in principle our idea. Um, I haven't had many replies as yet. Um, it seems to me there are various people um, within the establishment who would be in favour of that. So uh, I'm thinking in particular of um, Josip Borrell, is it? Um, the high representative in the EU who's said a lot of similar things, um, very in favour of stronger European defence and um, cooperation. Um, in Germany, there's Annalena Bayerbock, is that right? Um, That's right. Seeing very gung-ho about um, matters of security. Um, in Britain, there's been some very strong statements from um, the Minister of Defence there, and um, I mean, everybody's worried. I mean, we're looking at a huge disaster. World War Three does break out. And the problem, of course, the problem, of course, at the moment, and this is from a sort of a sort of pretty much a sort of a German or European perspective, but in my case, actually, also probably from a, a German perspective, because that's the, the main kind of media I, I get in in Europe at the moment, apart from the, the British media, which are kind of outside of the EU. Um, but um, the the the. the the real the real issue now, especially with sort of Donald Trump's sort of recent comments on how he would deal with you know countries that don't you know pay up and you know uh, um, there is a sort of a strong sense uh, that governments have to militarize they have to uh, you know like uh, incre significantly increase uh, their kind of military spending um, and yeah. there's a new arms race kind of building up now massively gathering steam. Give you an example that two days ago, a conservative member of parliament of the, the national parliament here in Germany, 
Um, you know, and this was a, sort of a kind of a strategic demand, which sort of echoes a whole fraction within society and within sort of the, the, the political community in Germany. Um, basically, Germany had set aside a hundred uh, billion, uh, you know, as a sort of a special fund to upgrade its army um, because it had for years and years and years relied entirely on the U.S. and there's a recognition that they have to really catch up. Now, um, and they also have committed to increase the annual spending and the idea is to reach eventually the 2% of GDP. Um, but now this kind of demand comes not to go for 100 billion, but listen to this, for 300 billion um, oh. in addition to the 100 billion. So we're not talking 400 billion. Uh, this is for a country of 80 million people. You know, so we're not talking, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like a, we're not talking Russia or China or the US here. We're talking about a significantly smaller country in terms of population size um and um and, and this is a massive this is a quantum leap uh, uh in terms of sort of military thinking and there's all this talk about we have to become war ready we have to become ready for war uh the, the swedish prime minister i believe it was the prime minister together with his kind of like a uh, uh, head of the army some time ago and it was a populist statement and people got quite annoyed in sweden especially on the on the liberal left got quite annoyed about it, but it made the statement that the Swedes should stock up on essentials so they're ready for an invasion and ready for war. And of course, people went panic shopping and you can you can imagine what 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 would happen as a result. Um, so really? so this is this is the kind of the, the kind of the atmosphere. The atmosphere is very much sort of saber rattling. It's 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 very much um kind of increasing significantly military spend. And, and with that comes a sort of an inward turn. People look much more at their own military rather than alliances. Uh, for example, it would make much more sense for Germany rather than spend even a hundred billion, never mind 300 or 400 billion, rather than spending that on itself, but to spend it on the European Defense Force, you know, to, to, to actually kind of begin to, to do that. And then of course, that may well be a bargaining chip with France so that France would say, well, then, okay, we make our nuclear arsenal, you know, put it at disposal of the EU. And you could then see how from a very much a sort of a nationalistic, a fragmented uh, a sort of like a, a security architecture in Europe, a European architecture could emerge. But that will far from that. That does not seem to be happening at the moment. And of course, this is all really playing to the hands of, you know, Mr. Putin, uh, who, who really does like that, uh, you know, like that, that kind of way of thinking uh, uh, a lot. Um, so, um, so anyway, so we're up against a huge problem here, a kind of, a, it's almost we're going against the current, we're going against the kind of the, against the times, the times are very much pointed towards militarization, and as you say, there is a serious risk, a fear uh, of a third world war, and it is not just scaremongering, um, you know, there are so many, you mentioned two you know, potential conflicts that could escalate, you know, Europe, uh, Ukraine and Russia, that could escalate uh, quite easily if, if Ukraine, especially if Ukraine loses that war. Um, then, of course, there is mm -hmm. kind of uh, China and Taiwan. But then, of course, there's the Middle East, which is a huge mess uh, and is really kind of already escalating in a way that we don't know at what point we reach a tipping point where that's just going to blow up the whole the whole region. Uh, that's not to mention Pakistan, the way it kind of has started to to really kind of enter into hostile uh, a conflict with Iran uh, or indeed with India. <laughs> and, and you can go on and on and on where we have these conflicts all around. And as you say, this is a kind of it feels very much for a lot of people like a pre-war period. And of course, when you look at pre-war periods, that's when people close down. That's when the shutters go down. That's when people become suspicious and distrustful when society is polarized and fragment. Um, it's in post-war periods, the kind of the period I grew up in, in, in Europe, post-war Europe, you know, that it made possible the UN, all the kind of multilateral organizations, that was a post-war, the catastrophe was behind us. Now people see that there's a catastrophe ahead of us. And that changes mindsets and makes it very, very difficult, of course, uh, to, to somehow turn this around. So I'm absolutely uh, in support of what you're trying to do. And I hugely admire uh, your kind of pig-headed optimism um, in the face, because, you, of course, you know yourself how impossible a fight that is. Um, but I really, I think it's that radical optimism, that pig-headed optimism uh, that we need if we want to kind of you know, put up any kind of resistance, any alternative 
to the status quo and the current development. Um, so um, you said that the, um, uh, the, the coalition for a world secret community of democratic nations is kind of stagnated a little bit. Uh, that is a huge pity, but it's understandable because it is such a slog. It's such a difficult development with such long time horizons. But from what I'm understanding, you're far from giving up. You, you want to use 2024 this year to revitalize uh, uh, the coalition uh, and to kind of set it off on, 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 that, on that new course, sort of fighting for a D10. Um, you are also looking for new members, I believe. So maybe you could tell me a little bit more about, just in the remaining few minutes we have, uh, what you've planned for this year. Um, and, and of course, also maybe say a little bit about if there was anybody out there interested in joining uh, your coalition, you know, you know, you know, how they could get in touch with you and what kind of support you would be looking for and what kind of thing they would be helping you with. All right. Um, thank you, Nico. That's very good. And, um, well, I hope I can live up to that uh, introduction. Um, well, I think the main thing is we have a website. Um, if you look up World Security Community, I believe you'd find the web website, worldsecuritycommunity.com or org. I'm afraid I'll forget which one. Um, you can get in touch with us uh, through that. That's well maintained by Alan Luke and his men. Um, what can you do? Well, I'd say you can help us lobby your own politicians. So I'm very busy at the moment writing letters to politicians in Australia. Mind you, I'm not sure what Australia can do to put items on the agenda. But um, maybe I could ask you, Nico, to um, write a letter or two to um, politicians in Germany, see if you can get them on board this idea. I mean, the principle, I don't know who said this, but if you want peace, prepare for war is, is a famous principle. Um, before World War II, all these ideas were out there. And in fact, um, there was a famous book, was it, by a fellow, um, Clarence Streit, proposing a union of democracies, a union of democracies in 1939 to combat um, the fascist, the, well, fascist governments in Europe, <laughs> Germany and Italy. Um, well, it didn't happen, but it's still a good idea and it would still be a good idea today. Um, maybe a union is too much to ask right off the bat, but, but a community could be done. Um, they just need to decide they need to do it. And then, as I say, set up a commission and off we go. Um, so, by all means, get in touch via our website and um, I can send draft letters and so on. Um, I have We have a document, uh, a detailed proposal document with, with all the details in it. Um, and we would welcome with open arms new members, yes. And of course, it's, um, it's probably worth mentioning that uh, although you yourself personally, you're based in Australia, um, the coalition is really is, is a global network of people. So if people are based, say, in the US or Canada or Europe, there will be people in their own time zone that they can engage with, communicate with, um, and, and, and sort of, you know, network with. And so they don't have to, it's not just, it's not, it's not Australia-centric in any way. Um, so right. I think that's important to know. Uh, you know, as, as far as the actual sort of like, if you like, basic time structure is concerned, when is the G7 meeting that you're all kind of building up to? When is that happening? Um, middle of June, I think, um, in, uh, I've forgotten, some small town in Italy, um, but 13th or 15th, something like that. Um, I believe they have discussions beforehand. So the um, trade ministers, for instance, and probably the, the agenda is set well before the summit meeting. So it's a matter of urgency, if you like, to try and get it um, willy-nilly on the agenda. So I, I've been writing right now letters to our local politicians just to, you know, let them know, see if they have any advice, see if they might be willing to do something. Um, it should be a bipartisan thing, so I'm um, talking to both sides of politics here. Um, 
and I hope um, I can sign up some of our members elsewhere to do similar things. Excellent, Chris. This this is really um, yeah, it's it's a really worthwhile thing to do. Um, of course, nobody expects a big breakthrough at that G seven, but it's it's small steps, isn't it? And if 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 people really put in a bit of effort now, so that it moves up the agenda, even if it doesn't become a major agenda item in June, uh, it it all is you know you know. Uh, um, a step in the right direction. So I, I can really only encourage people to get in touch uh, with you uh, through your website. Um, and I wish you really all the best, uh, you know, a, a good 2024. Uh, let's hope that this is a year where democracy kind of starts fighting back um, on, 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 on the global stage. Uh, and I wish you personally a really good year too. So hopefully, maybe in a year's time, we're going to catch up and see how the coalition is doing whether you know whether you've made a step forward or a step backward or maybe you know talk about a new strategy of how to how to approach this differently if we have to but please do carry on i i, I think you're doing a great job and uh, i'm really grateful for all, all grateful for all the things you guys do so thank you and um as i said i hope to speak to you again in about a year's time thank you nico great you're doing a great job yourself and so um Yes, keep keep it up. I will have it indeed, and we will stay in touch. Chris, have a good one, yeah? Right. All the rest. Bye-bye. Right.